So how many of you are political junkies in this room? Any of you? You are living it up. You are in between the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. You got a breather of a couple days. And uh, they're at it. We are trying to solve the problems in our nation and our world. There are concerns. There is a lot of bantering and posturing and positioning as to what it will take to keep our nation alive and well. And whatever side of the aisle you may be on or different persuasions, I was taught this early on that, uh, you know, you can look past parties, you can even look past individuals at some level, but what direction leads us in the most biblical worldview kind of direction possible? Uh, it's a university in the town that I was uh, from had a great political science professor, and he would always teach his uh, political science students that, is that you just got to get past all the clutter and come back and say, What's the biblical worldview? Now, if you don't know what a biblical worldview is, that's where we would start, right? You know, it's interesting, though, um, being from Indiana and all that, it was a little bit extra special for us dialing in the last few days. In fact, my son, Zach, is back from the summer. Welcome back, Zach. Zach's been a couple months uh, back in Indiana working at the family farm. But, uh, Zach, you were in church last week, right? And there were some bodyguards in church last week. And uh, the church you went to was a church of a friend's, was a larger church. But who did you see at church just last Sunday? Mike Pence was in church last Sunday. Now, I don't personally know Mike Pence. He is the governor of Indiana, but there are several people that I do know that work for the governor in Indiana and uh, have worked for him. And it was just all interesting to me that the day after you get positioned as the VP candidate for a party, and the day before you're heading out to the National Convention, you choose to go to church. And uh, I'm not um, persuading you to vote any particular direction that way, but when Mike stands up and he says, you know, I'm a Christian first, I'm a Republican, uh, uh, conservative second, Republican third, he, he means what he says. He really does live that life. So uh, for all of our politicians, as they're trying to figure out the situation at hand, we should be in prayer. And we should also labor and take our opportunity to be able to vote uh, what I believe is in a biblical framework. Has you feel led of the Lord in that? But it's this idea that America, in part, as we know it, is dying. Changing, at least. And so you say, well, we need to do something, right? We need to do something. We're losing our country kind of idea. And you... Again, another week filled with uh, terrorist uh, attacks and um, uh, other just very, very sad things. Like, well, can we not just get one week where we don't have this trauma going on? What's happening? How do you wake up a nation that might be dying? I'll give you my solution. I've seen it throughout the history of different countries, but in particular America. The only way to keep America from dying is to make sure that the church isn't dying because the church stewards the life transforming message of Jesus Christ. We steward the gospel, the gospel of hope, of change and redemption, changing people from the inside out. There is evil in the world because there's evil in the heart. 
And as I've said before, we don't have a skin issue as much as we have a sin issue. And who deals in the business of seeing sinful lives changed and transformed? We do. And when you look at the great awakenings that happened in our American culture, it was because people came alive, spiritually alive. And so for all the political bannering and things that go on and, 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 and policy, those are very important things. But I'm glad that I'm here today. I'm glad I'm not at a political convention because I believe we steward more hope through our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ that can be ever steward just merely on a political platform. But here's the question. Is the church alive? Is the church alive in America? You don't have it as much here as you do in the Midwest or in the South, but many times you would drive down a road and you see an old church building. But the church building is not used for church anymore. It's used maybe for some civic organization or maybe some other type of business might be in there. Or maybe it's just all boarded up. Churches closed down. Now, it may be because there's some demographic changes and things have, have changed in the culture around there. And, and that's true. But many a times it's because the church inside, the people, the church die. How many of you out of the uh, medical profession, nurse, uh, doctor, world, I can't work it out. All right. You have certain codes that go off when you are in the medical field, right? And uh, there's a whole list of them. I was looking at them this week. But I specifically recall, and I remember being on some hospital visitation sometimes, and, and, and I, sometimes I know some hospitals are a little bit different to others, how they code things. But you would hear the alarm go out. Code blue, code blue. What's code blue? There's cardiac arrest going on, right? And so the people that are assigned to that code team, they stop what they do and they go and they give attention and they try to keep the person alive. Could it be that we need to sound an alarm related to the church saying code blue, code blue, is the church alive? Well, we're going to look at a church today that was on the brink, on the brink, life and death. And code blue was going out. And the person who sounded the alarm was the person of Jesus Christ himself. In the book of Revelation, we have several letters that are written by Jesus to the apostle John on the island of Patmos to send to the churches that were in the Asia Minor area. The churches in the Asia Minor area... um, are listed up there in that cluster on that map. See, the gospel had spread. It began in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus died and rose from the grave, right? And, and things just started to take off. Antioch. Antioch was the first place that those who were followers of Jesus were called Christians. We assume that name today, Christian, you know, and it might mean different kinds of things going on. But Antioch was a base of operations. And then the gospel, followers of Jesus Christ, began to spread throughout the known modern world at that time. And so you have all those churches clustered there together in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. They were seeking to be alive in Christ 
and they were walking out this hope that they were stewarding that Jesus Christ came. He came not to abolish the law, but to complete the law and to bring in a whole new world of hope. That it wasn't about do's and don'ts and religions and rituals. It was about a relationship, a relationship with God himself come in the flesh, raised from the grave, who's coming back again after he sent into the heaven, but sent his very spirit to dwell within us. Jesus is alive. And so it started to take off and catch like fire all the way over into then you have Greece and then over into Rome. The gospel spread around that area. The cities that John wrote to. Through Jesus' instructions, let's name them. You should be getting this down by now in this series. We'll start with Ephesus. Ready? Here we go. Let's go around the map. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We've looked at the first four. Today we look at Sardis. And Sardis was in a code blue situation. And we're going to be referencing that. And what does it mean to be in that kind of code blue situation? So when you pull your scriptures out into Revelations 3, 1, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write. And the angels referencing the leadership of that church write this letter, take it to them on that trail. Now Sardis um, today, guess what? Doesn't exist. It's not like some of the other cities that we've looked at, right? With Ephesus and even Thyatira last week. There's nothing there that's, oh, there's a a village that goes by the name of Sart or something that's around there. But Sardis is dead. But Sardis used to be one of the key places in that part of Asia Minor called Lydia. And for years, we're not talking just decades, we're talking centuries before Jesus Christ showed up on the scene, Sardis was a prominent place in the known world at that time. Now, Sardis had sort of two levels, physical, geographical levels. There was the area of the city in the lower level, but that came after Sardis that was up on that hill. Can you see that there's some stones and a wall that's up on there. Sardis used to be up on the hill. Sardis was this place that was really impenetrable by any enemy. Croesus was a leader at the time. In fact, Sardis is known for the first coinage, the first time that coins and money actually became intangible like that, gold coins and other kinds of opportunities. It was very rich. It was very wealthy. And it was up on this thousand foot kind of area and there were cliffs on all the sides and you could not get up to those kinds uh, up through those kinds of cliffs to be able to take on the city so Croesus and and all the people of Sardis they felt themselves pretty safe they were the capital of Lydia at the time we're talking centuries here before Jesus Christ showed up on the scene centuries before this letter was written there was history to the church in Sardis that caused Jesus Christ to read to write to them some of the words that we're going to reflect on this morning concerning their code blue situation you see Sardis had been conquered a couple different times in particular because they were asleep on the watch Now, how do you penetrate something that's way up on a hill like that? Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia came along, 
he took his army and they decided to besiege Sardis. And so they just camped up all the way around that mountain area. But how are they going to get up there? And they sat there for a number of days. And so he finally encouraged the soldiers and other people, if any of you can figure out a place to take on Sardis, a way to take down Sardis, then let me know. Well, one of the soldiers of Cyrus's army was observing and watching one day, and one of the soldiers from Sardis was on the wall. And he leaned over the wall, and as he leaned over the wall, his helmet fell off. And he noticed that the soldier disappeared and all of a sudden in a few moments reappeared down below the wall. And there was a secret passageway or door that must have been there. And so that soldier went and told his, uh, his boss, right? He says, hey, there's a, a way to get in there. And so Cyrus took all of his army around to one side. Croesus and his forces went over there to, oh, oh my gosh, you know, they're over here, they're fine, they're never going to get up there. And the special op forces of Cyrus went up that little cliff, that little area, and in through that secret passage and captured them. And this only didn't happen once, it happened twice. There was another place on the wall where they were throwing bodies over the wall for the vultures to eat. And they noticed in that place were people that died, you know, people that died. I guess you didn't bury them, you threw them over the wall, let the vultures eat. And, you know, in that particular situation in that era of time, it was like, well, wait a second, they don't guard that part of the wall. And that's the part of the wall that they conquered Sardis with. So if you took history classes in the schools of Sardis, you knew the history of your city, that your city was besieged and taken over at a couple strategic times and lost some of its glory because people went asleep. All right. So that's some of the terrain that you might see there now. And that depicts both places of Sardis. Now in Sardis, there were um, some pretty incredible buildings there. This is the gymnasium, uh, the Romans' uh, rule and what was going on. So there's a huge outer court in the gymnasium. There was also the largest synagogue outside of Palestine was in Sardis. So it means there was a large contingency of people that believed in Yahweh, that believed in God. And out of that group, many became followers of Jesus Christ. Now we're going to come back to those two um, ideas in a second, but it goes on and says this in Revelations 3.1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. We've talked about this before, but it's a scary thought to know that Jesus knows. Jesus knows everything he wants to know about your life and my life, about the communities we're a part of, the families we're in. Jesus knows. Now, that's affirming if you're really wishing that people would understand your motives and people aren't believing in you. It's like, oh, thank God, Jesus knows. He's my advocate. He's my defender. But there's the other side that goes, oh, 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 I am never, ever alone. Jesus knows, right? 
So Jesus knows this church, and with a lot of the churches, what? He laid out commendations to begin with, like, man, you guys are doing so good. You're faithful. You're true. You're pushing through the persecution that's around you. That doesn't happen with the church at Sardis. There is no commendation. There is no, thank you very much. I'm so proud of you. There's just immediately, I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but <clears throat> you are D-E-A-D. You're dead. What? What? What do you mean? They very much knew what he meant when that letter arrived to them. Because their glory days were in the rearview mirror. Their glory days were in the rearview mirror. And they were living off of the nostalgia of their past. They were a great city. They were a capital of the Lydia area. And generations gone by but what they were then was a dying city and jesus said you're dead and there had been vibrancy without question in the faith with the group of people that were still there as christians but he was going to address them in a very straightforward way and get them to reckon with what was going on now I'm trying to depict how we can grab a hold of this because it's very personal in many ways. I am not some spiritual guru, you know, a doctor. I don't have the insight that Jesus has. But I think in terms of Jesus being a doctor and seeing us not only physically but also spiritually, and he could walk up and down each of these rows and he could step up here on stage and look at me and he could say, either healthy or you're dying or code blue. He knows. And we can pass off what we are by living behind a facade. Can we not? We can fake things. Can't fake things with Jesus. And if we want to have hope for our nation, if we want to have hope for our community, if we want to have hope for us as a church community, our families, then we can't fake it. Do we have a reputation for being alive, but we're really dead? In other words, does does the reputation you carry spiritually, is the reputation you you are caring spiritually with other people backed up by a true reality? Or is it a facade? You know what facades are, right? So, I mean, you've been to you know, some of the studio sets, right? If you were to go to Universal, those kinds of things. My oldest son, Ryan, works at Universal NBC, so sometimes on lunch he'll go and, and he'll walk the back lot. And I've gone to walk the back lot with him. Some of you have walked the back lot, right? And you're around the back lot, and you go, oh, wow, well, look, now we are in the Wild West scene. Isn't that pretty cool, you know? And, and you go a little farther, and all of a sudden you're in a 1950s kind of set, you know? In fact, the whole uh, Back to the Future courthouse sits there on the Universal lot, if you can sort of imagine that, if you remember that uh, movie. And you go a little bit further, and you're a little bit in the New York area. Now you're over in Europe, all right? But what happens if you walk up to the sets and you walk through the doors, what's on the back side? 
lumber. Sticks sticking up, holding things. There's nothing there. But from the outside, you can pretend, you can believe you're maybe in those areas, and, and it's portrayed that way in movie and TV shows, but there's no substance of the real thing behind the facade. And Jesus says to you and I spiritually, You dead? Or you alive? Behind the scene. This church had a reputation for being alive. But Jesus knew the true reality was not alive. It was dead. It was dead. Something had begun to decay. Something had begun to rot, if you will. Queen Mary, some of you have been to the Queen Mary down, you know, it's parked down on Long Beach, right? Queen Mary was in service for, what, four decades, one world war, you know? And they took the Queen Mary out of, of use, and they parked it in Long Beach, and they renovated it. Some of you may have even stayed on the Queen Mary. They have renovated it into a museum and a, and a hotel. Do you know that when they took the smokestacks off the Queen Mary, and they placed them on the docks, to scrub them and to repaint them. They took the smokestacks and they placed them on the dock and they crumbled. Do you know why they crumbled? Because the three-quarter inch steel plates that made up those smokestacks over all those years had totally corroded and disintegrated and all that was left was 30 coats of paint. That's what it was, 30 coats of paint. So they put it there and it just crumbled. The substance, the reality behind that which was visible was not there. Was not there. A reputation for being alive. But you are dead. Sad news this week. Did you catch this news? The tree from Shawshank Redemption movie fell over. Any of you remember that movie? All right. Big heavy, you know, the, the prisoner thing. Red, if you get out, you need to go there. Promise me, Red, if you ever get out, find that spot. Find the spot where, you know, his friend had met his wife and, and now he was in prison because he was falsely accused of killing his wife. You know, the whole story there. And the tree that's so visible and prominent at the end of Shawshank Redemption fell over by some winds. It was a little bit of a tourist site. I think it's in Ohio somewhere, somewhere in the Midwest. And there it is. Knocked over. Why? Because it was drying up on the inside a number of years ago. Some lightning had struck it and it begun to hollow itself out. Maybe you've come across a hollow tree before. From the outside it looks all great. But on the inside it is disintegrating and dying away. And so when those winds came, it just happened to be the time that it gotten that week. There goes the tree. I know. I know the reputation you have, church. I know the reputation you have, Christian. The reputation to others is that you're alive, but you are dead. Those are pretty heavy, straightforward kind of words. Chuck Swindoll describes a dead church. Five things he says. A dead church worships its past. A dead church worships its past. 
I was pastor, associate pastor once of a church that had been fairly large in the city of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it actually had a building, a facility that used to be one of the largest facilities in the Midwest in the earliest of years. It was a big tabernacle temple kind of cathedral building. And people from a tri-state area would turn out to come to different, uh, like almost like camp meeting, big kinds of conferences there. And um, over the years, that church had sort of gone way down. And I'd actually gone to that church when I was a younger kid. I went back there and I was pastor on staff there for a period of time. But so many times I know the reflection was, well, back in the good days, back in the good days, we used to run a thousand people in this building. Back in the good days, people would come from Michigan and Ohio and Indiana and gather here. And they're back in the, the good days, right? Now, when I was younger, the church was running about five, six hundred. My family drove us there because it was actually coming alive and had a vibrant pastor at the time. We traveled 50 minutes one way. I went back there to join them on staff after I was out of graduate school for a few years. Uh, We probably had a remnant of maybe, I don't know, 100 people, good people. But we lived on the past. And I was there to raise the dead. It's not easy. A dead church worships its past. Secondly, a dead church is inflexible and resistant to change. Now, there's some things you need to be inflexible on. The key essentials of the faith. You don't compromise the core doctrines of the faith, that Jesus Christ is God himself, that Jesus Christ died for our sins because we're sinners, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, all right, that salvation is only found through him. There are certain fundamentals of the faith. We stay true. We're inflexible on those. But so many times churches become inflexible on things that really don't matter, and they're more like cultural preferences than they are true diehard biblical principles methods are many principles are few methods always change but principles never do dead churches end up being inflexible and resistant to change well we've never done it that way before or in the past this it was good enough then why isn't good enough now you know a lot of times you get caught up in in uh in, in, in styles of how things are done even music right it's, it's sort of a lightning rod I've always been endeared by people of an older generation. I can sort of live between multiple different kinds of generations because of my age and appreciation of music styles and that kind of thing. But the grandma who says to me, I go to that church, I don't care much for the music of that church, but I love my grandkids. And if that music reaches my grandkids, then I'm at that church because I want them there. Now, that's the spirit of somebody who is willing to be flexible on those things that are important and to be able to accommodate and grow to change. But dead churches, they rest on their past. They're inflexible and resistant to change. Dead churches also have lazy leadership. They don't get out there and take the risk, take the initiatives, look to the future. What's possible? Let's go. Let's rally the troops. Let's jump in. Let's make things happen, whether it's in you know, different kinds of sub-ministry sets or whatever. But you'll find that dead churches have lazy leadership. Dead churches neglect youth. They neglect youth. And you know we're in that process here in many ways, just re-owning an initiative and a drive and a heart to reach young people. 
even having Amanda share up here this morning, the idea of reaching younger adults, right? Post high school and the 20 something kind of deal. Let's get at it. How do we go out reaching? Because if we do not reach the youth, then we'll just be one of those aging congregations. And I'm included in that with all my white hair, right? I used to be young, all right? The aging congregation, and you sit around in some churches and you go, wow, there's a lot of white heads here, all right? Well, could it be that that church neglected reaching the youth and the younger generation? If you don't go after younger generation and you don't put your heart and your soul in that and take some initiatives and put resources into it, and it's one of the things we've done. I was just thinking here with Joe leading worship this morning. Uh, he's coming up on August here. That means he uh, have been here a year. Year. And a lot of ups and downs for him trying to make some things happen, and, but he is. And he's building a team around him. I'm so thankful for that. A dead church also lacks evangelistic zeal. People who have new Faith in Christ, freshly redeemed, changed lives, born again. If there is not people that are coming to know Jesus in a church, watch out. It's on a trajectory of appearing to be alive, but is dead. I'm excited for our baptism service on 21st. If uh, there's new believers, even in our body here, get baptized. It's following Jesus in obedience. I do commit a life to him. So it's going to be a bigger day for us on the 21st. It's the end of the series on this. I'm actually going to probably pull back some of these and some other kind of thoughts through the course of the whole On the Brink series. As we finish out the last day, August 21st, we are going to talk about Jesus' letter to the Awakening Church. And I'm going to give you this heads up again, just like I did with the, the elders that I met with this last week. If you've got words that you've spent before the Lord receiving from him, Concerning us as a church, email those to me. Jesus isn't just speaking to this church through me as a leader. He speaks through us as a body. And some of you have eyes and ears on things that I don't have. Then what would Jesus say to us, the awakening church? You know, I was really hesitant. It was funny last week we were kidding and giving Josh a hard time saying the old church name around here when he gave announcements, you know, going from Chorus Church and we named it the Awakening Church. I was one of the things when the Awakening idea came to me, I'm like, I like, like the name because of my church history and the idea and our, you know, mission statement, fully alive in Christ and to his mission. But there's part of me going, oh, that's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. If you name your church the Awakening Church, how many people are going to come visit and they're going to sit there on the back row and go, this place is dead. You can't name yourself the Awakening Church if there's not some life there, right? Some accountability. So, Jesus, what would Jesus say to us? And, and we've been on our journey the last couple of years, right? The ups and downs, the ins and outs, the comings and goings. But, you know, there's vitality and there's life here. I see it every week and what God's doing. What would Jesus say to the Awakening Church? Just lift that up in your prayer requests and then listen. And if you hear something, you might think, well, that's just me thinking that because I have an edge on me. Well, that could be. Or it could be that God wants us as a body to know something that he's revealing to you, right? When they got together in the New Testament, they shared words of knowledge. And, and, and the gifts were operative. And part of that was that, they, here's a word I would say, not just to the body, but maybe to an individual. So the reason I give you that assignment is because a lot of times we don't hear from Jesus what he would say to us as a church. Because... We're not expecting him to talk. He will talk. 
And we dig out our ears and ask this Holy Spirit to reveal to us. And yeah, you, 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 you collaborate it with the Word. You collaborate it with some other kinds of people. But you may have a word for this church. So I've belabored the point enough. You got it? August 21st, what would Jesus say to the awakening? But I know one of the things he'd say to the awakening is that you need to have an evangelistic zeal. You need to see people come to know Christ. You need to be reaching your friends and your neighbors, your co-workers. We're going to have a baptism service. We're going to celebrate people who have come to know Christ. So I encourage you, even if you've known Christ for many years, but you've never followed in the steps of baptism, you know, just mark the back of your connection card, um, and we'll be glad to receive that at the end of service. But I'm going to add one here to Mr. Swindoll's five, because I could preach on all five of those. Maybe some of you could. A dead church goes along to get along. You know what I mean by that? A dead church goes along to get along. In other words, there's compromise and there's temperateness as to, okay, we don't want to ruffle the feathers, or yeah, we sort of believe that, but I don't want to you know, tell people that because then they're going to look at me a certain way. A dead church goes along to get along. Friends, we cannot back away from the vibe of the faith and the core doctrines and the life that we have in Christ. And you know what was happening at the church of Sardis? That's what they were doing. And we know it not only because the words of Jesus in this letter, we know it because of the city itself. Upper right hand pictures, the Colosseum. I mean, the gymnasium. And there was a big courtyard. Right next to the courtyard was the synagogue, which is depicted at the bottom of the screen. If you're to go into the courtyard, that largest synagogue outside of Palestine at the time, you would find that there's some pretty cool mosaics that were on the walls, other kinds of things. But inside the synagogue itself, even on an altar, you found that eagle. Do you want that eagle's representative of? The Romans. The Roman government and other animals that were depicted there through statues that were representative of the Roman government. What in the world is that doing in the synagogue? The picture above on the upper left is found in the marketplace. And the marketplace was a place, because we've talked about this before, in fact, last week with Thyatira, maybe didn't pull it out as much, but when there were all the trade guilds, the trade guilds had their own known deity, and you needed to worship that deity. They were getting involved in, in sexual immorality. They were involved in be, eating food offered to idols, which represented corruption of the faith. And the Christians in Thyatira were just corrupting themselves, and that's one way you do it when you're up against opposition, right? But, but the Sardis church, they were just going along to getting along. And you would go into the marketplace and there was a booth, if you will, that had a cross on it. And there was also Jewish symbols. If you were really sticking up for the faith, you weren't allowed in the marketplace. You weren't allowed into the marketplace because you were seen as shunning the deities and what other people were worshiping. But so Sardis' solution was just we're going to go, go along to get along. And there was compromise happening. In fact, the very position of the synagogue next to the gymnasium, why would they put it there? The gymnasium, a lot of times they had these uh, dances in the courtyard outside and they would dance naked. And all that was involved, they were right next to the baths that were, were there. And who knows, you know, all kinds of corrupt things would happen in the baths, right, with 
this. And they went and put the synagogue right beside the gymnasium and all that would be there. It didn't seem to matter to them. So it wasn't just that Jesus was saying, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're being dead. You can go there and archaeologically say, this place was compromised in its faith. Any church, any Christian that starts to live a compromised life to go along, to get along, is in trouble. I want to bring this into today a little bit by having you watch a a quick video clip of of Joe Stowell, president of Cornerstone University. He's done some series on these. I thought this was interesting. He gives a couple examples out of his own life related to the church of Sardis. He takes this video, it's done in Sardis, and he relates to what was happening then and brings it into our culture today. The pressures that these early Christians faced in Sardis in their get-along culture are very much like the pressures that we face today in our culture, which clearly is a get-along culture. You know, today people don't mind if I tell them that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and that he is my Lord and my Savior. Everybody's good with that. But if I get to the point where he said that he is the only way, that's where the friction starts to come. Because when Jesus says that, he says that his way is right and all the other systems are wrong. That's what we're not allowed to say in our get-along culture. I recall a famous TV interviewer whose evening program was watched by millions of people all over the country. Every time he would interview a Christian, he would ask this question. Are you one of those who believes that Jesus is the only way? talk about standing up for Christ with everybody watching. Well, I have to say that I was shocked one night to hear a Christian leader say, well, he is the only way for me, but I can't say that for everyone else. He folded. Thankfully, about a month later, he retracted his statement and made the claim that indeed he did believe that Jesus was the only way. Right after 9-1-1, I went to the Chicago prayer breakfast. Uh, I'd gone every year for years. At the outset, you know, the name of Jesus was held high. People prayed in Jesus' name. But I'd noticed over the years that that slowly went away and it became more of a multiple interfaith kind of prayer breakfast. Well, this year I was very excited because a pastor from Wall Street in New York City was speaking and he was going to talk about the devastation that had happened in New York just months before. I'll tell you, he was good. He had the right pace. His illustrations were gripping. His words were like spot on. I loved it until he got toward the end. And he made this statement that now in the future, we are going to have to drop the traditions that divide us so that we, in my words, can all get along. I knew exactly what he was talking about the divisive reality of Jesus Christ, calling Jesus a tradition that divides us, undersells Jesus for sure. But that's what he meant. When he was done with his talk, the entire room exploded in applause with a standing ovation. I knew that I couldn't stand. That to stand in response to that would be to deny Jesus Christ. I looked at my friends sitting around the table They couldn't stand either. It was that clear, this call. 
to get along. So what does Jesus say in response to the deadness of this church? He's straight on. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Now, it's interesting with what Stowell says. It sort of relates back to us. There's not any one of us in this room that don't want to get along with people. But there's a danger if we place getting along with other people before our allegiance and our trust in Christ and the gospel of hope that is found in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Friends, that's exclusivistic. And you may not like that. And you may say, well, we need to set aside our traditions like this guy was saying in that arena at that time with the 9-11 meeting. But you and I cannot compromise our faith, whether personally or in the world in which we live. Because to do so, we were compromising on that which has the very substance to bring change and transformation in our world, in our nation, and in our lives. And so Jesus comes to this church and he just simply says, wake up, wake up. Now again, remember the history of Sardis. What happened to the soldiers that were supposedly keeping guards? In fact, some of them didn't keep guards because they felt they were so safe. They just didn't even guard parts of the the wall. We're, We're good, we're good. We're good. We're America. God bless America. Right? One nation under God. Trust in God. Right? Wake up. Wake up. You can have subtle sleepiness set in through compromise and condoning things. I want to get along with everyone. But I know that if I compromise the truth of the gospel, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then I no longer have anything to offer anybody to bring any hope because Jesus changes people from the inside out. People are spiritually dead. Maybe you're spiritually dead here today. Maybe you can recall when you were spiritually dead. Until Jesus Christ comes into your life, you are not alive spiritually. And they were compromising their message. They were compromising Christ himself. And he leans over them, sort of like, you know, sometimes you see a show or maybe those of you in the medical profession and the person sort of, oh, hang with me, hang with me. Or maybe on a battlefield and somebody's wounded, you're like, hang with me. Don't, don't, we're here, we're here. Talk to me, talk to me. Why? Because you see them slipping away. And Jesus sees this church slipping away. He sees many churches slipping away. He may very well see the evangelical movement in America slipping away. And I'm not one here for a doom and gloom on that. I'm just trying to be realistic for us to evaluate and say, where are we at as a country? Where are we at as a movement of vibrant believers in the evangelical faith? Where are we at as the awakening church? Where are you at? Hang with me, Jesus would say. Don't go there. Oh, you're doing fine. You're walking around. The facade's good. Everybody thinks you're alive. You're actually here today. Good job. You got a lot of things you could have done. But Jesus looks straight through all that and he says, are you really alive? He says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Let me just break this down for you with uh, some steps. Step one, what do you do if you're dead on the inside? You're the facade that you're rusting away. You're hollow as a tree. 
Step one is to awaken to your failing condition. Discontentment's the first step towards progress, right? Some, some of us, I've been there before. When I've been more spiritually numb, I'm sort of content. Oh, I don't want to have to wake up and really get vibrant again in my faith or seek Jesus out. Can I just coast here for a while? God, I've given you my whole life serving you. Can I just coast? No. No. Awaken to your failing condition. Second, then, is strengthen what remains. The, strengthen the good that remains. The small amount. Of, maybe they'd reduce Jesus and Sardis. He's saying, you know, you know, get me back in my prominence of who I am. Preaching and teaching and living out a vibrant faith that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Strengthen the good that remains. And then step three here was to complete what has not been finished. I found your deeds incomplete. God says, Then he goes on, he says this, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Oh, there's a little bit of a history lesson again. Yeah. Those special op forces, they snuck in like these. Step four, remember what you have been taught. Step five, obey the authoritative word of God. And step six, repent to turn and pursue Jesus. Verse four, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. Referencing the end times when God comes and those will be clothed with white. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Is your reputation the true reality of your life? You know, some people fake it all the way to the end. In fact, it's said that some pass from this life and they cry out, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that in your name? And Jesus will say what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Because Jesus knows. Is your reputation the true reality of your life? I think there's three groups of people. Be depictive of three groups of people in this room. Those who have never been spiritually born alive in Christ. Don't try to fake it if you've never come to a place of repenting, inviting Christ into your life. It's his spirit that makes you alive spiritually. But there's some people in group A, they've never been spiritually born alive in Christ. When we celebrate people coming up out of a baptism tank, we're rejoicing what? Because they've been born again. They're spiritually alive in Christ. Group B. Those who have been born alive in Christ, but they've begun to die. Are you on a slow fade in this season of your life spiritually? Then wake up. Jesus says, hang with me. Strengthen what remains. Repent and return to me. And then group C. Those who have remained true and spiritually alive in Christ. Three groups of people. Three groups of people. What group would you find yourself in today? Will you pray with me? Lord, today we're so grateful that we're able to come to you. Not in theory, 
not in hope, but in reality. You walk among the lampstands, represented in these words to the seven churches, as you walk among the churches, and you know. And you know what we need, and so we come to you in reality. So, Lord, whatever group we may identify with this morning, I pray for those who have never crossed the line of becoming spiritually alive by inviting you in their life that they would consider, even in the quietness of this prayer, repenting of their former ways of life or indifference and turning to you, inviting you into their life for you to be the leader of their life. Jesus, for those that maybe are in a what's sometimes referred to as a backslidden state or a dying state, a fading state. Lord, may you take those individuals this morning and encourage them to wake up and to become spiritually alive, to take some of those steps, to be able to see the opportunity that that stands right in front of them, to, to move out of the doldrums and move into a vital faith again. Maybe even a more vital faith than they had when they look back on the history of their life. Take them to new places they've never been before. Lord, many times it'll look different. We age, our emotions change, those type of things. But the vitality underneath it all, Lord, take them to a place that maybe they've never been before. May those who are fading and dying return and become spiritually alive, even in this day. And then, Lord, for those who have not soiled their clothes, who have remained faithful, we pray that you would just encourage them and affirm them. Lord, your word says that there is a a Lamb's book of life in which our names are written down if we've committed to you and that you will never blot our names out of that book. Lord, may we look to you with full assurance and hope, not just merely for the salvation of our soul to be in heaven with you someday, Lord, but for us to be vitally alive, to be able to do your service and your purposes here on this earth. Lord, we're grateful that you've included us. You've written our name down. Lord, may we not compromise our faith. And Lord, may we rest upon you and your finished work of the cross. For all the distractions around us, including political ones, may we make sure that we have the real thing a vital, alive relationship with you. Lord, for anybody in a code blue situation today, may you attend to their soul and may you bring life where there is death. In your name, amen.